John 17. And as we continue our series through the Lord's prayer in John 17 on the eve of his crucifixion, we're looking at one verse this afternoon, John 17, 12, and considering the son of perdition. John 17, verse 12, give attention to God's holy word. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a great privilege to be given your word through the ministry of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, now that as you bring your word to us once again, you would bless us by that Holy Spirit, that we may be kept by the power of Christ. We ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as we just read in the shorter catechism, one of the most serious commandments One of the most serious sins that we can commit is the sin of blasphemy, violating God's name and taking his name in vain. Now, often when we think about the sin of blasphemy, we think about using God's name as a curse word. When we stub our toe, we say something we shouldn't say, or we maybe have family or friends or neighbors who perhaps take the Lord's name in vain in that sense. But you'll notice that in the catechism that we just read, it says that the sin of the third commandment, blasphemy, is to abuse any of the ways that God reveals himself to us. It's not merely to use his name in an improper manner. It is also, as we're going to see in the case of the son of perdition, to claim the name of Jehovah, to claim the name of Christ and fail to live according to the word of Christ. That is also blasphemy because it is taking the Lord's name on ourselves in vain. Now, when we see this example of the son of perdition, it can be easy to think, especially if you're aware of your own sins. There is no way that I can prevent myself from blaspheming the Lord. I've been baptized, as we learned this morning, and I have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. God has taken me into the number and put his name upon me. How am I to preserve myself from this great sin of blasphemy? The great sin that led Judas to eternal destruction. Well, here's the good news. You don't. Christ does. What we're going to learn in this passage, this one verse, is that it is by the power and the ministry of Christ that the elect are kept from the power of Satan. It is by the power and ministry of Christ that the elect are kept from the power of Satan. One last illustration before we get into this passage We need to understand the danger that all of us stand in. 
Peter speaks about this in his first letter. Elisha's servant had a, a picture of this when they were in Samaria surrounded by the Assyrian army. At one level, Elisha's servant was right to be terrified because the power of Assyria was greater than the power of Israel. The power of Satan is greater than your power. You cannot defeat him, and he, as Peter says, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Perhaps you've seen videos, uh, documentaries of African uh, herds of wildebeest running across the plain, and the lions are there in the shadows, watching and waiting. And you know who the lions attack? They don't attack the strong ones. They don't attack the ones that are in the middle of the flock, as it were. They attack the stragglers. They attack the ones that are on the fringes. They attack the ones that are weak. This is the danger that we are all in from the power of Satan. But praise be to God, we have a great shepherd who keeps his sheep. We're going to see three things in this verse. Christ, the elect, and Satan. Christ, the elect, and Satan. Verse 12a is Christ. That would be up to the the first sentence there in your verse. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. That's 12a. 12b is the elect. Those whom you have given me I have kept, and none of them is lost. And then 12c is Satan. Except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Christ, the elect, and Satan. And so we begin with Christ. And I want you to see at the beginning of this verse that Christ says, While I was with them in the world. It is the presence of Christ that keeps you. It is being in the presence of the shepherd that defends you. It is being in his presence. While Christ was with them in the world, he kept them in the name of the Father. Now Christ makes this prayer, and the effect of his prayer is not, I'm going to depart from them and they're on their own. It's that I'm going to depart from them bodily. And his prayer is for the Holy Spirit to manifest his presence with them spiritually. It is still the presence of Christ that preserves you, brothers and sisters. But Christ's presence is no longer physical and visible. His presence is spiritual and invisible. His presence is known by the power of the Holy Spirit according to his promise. And that's what Christ has promised. Psalm 22, verse 22. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 2. The psalmist writes in Psalm 22, 22, that Christ will proclaim the name of the Father in the midst of the assembly. I want you to understand that, brothers and sisters, that Christ is present with his church today by the Spirit, through the ministry of preaching. He is the one who proclaims the name of the Father in the midst of his brothers. He is the one who is present, and it is only by his presence that we are preserved from the power of Satan. Many of you, I know some of your family stories, and I know other stories that are from different churches, but we've all heard the stories of a member of the church who 
begins absenting themselves from church. Eventually, they, they just kind of, they kind of wander off. They kind of depart from the fellowship of the saints. They're, they're leaving the community of the church, and then eventually, they fall into heinous sin, and they're lost. It all started with absenting themselves from the presence of Christ. So Christ says, while I was with them, but here's the other uh, piece of this, that Christ, it's not just his presence that keeps us. He does it in a certain way. Notice what he says. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. The word keep here uh, refers to keep an eye on, to watch out for. The illustration, I think, that, that fits this verb, what Christ is describing, it would be like when our children play in the playground in the backyard. And the parents maybe have the window open and they're, they're chatting, but mom and dad always have an ear and an eye sort of looking, kind of observing what's going on out there. That's what Christ is describing. While I was with them in the world, I kept my eye on them. I was watching out for them. And then, of course, you parents know when, when the children get too close to the road, when they start getting too close, like in my backyard, we have a fire pit, when they start messing around in the fire pit, dad's voice comes out, no, no, don't go that way. Come back. Get back in the yard. Get back in the fold. That's what Christ is describing. While I was with them, I kept my eye on them. Notice here, brothers and sisters, that even when the disciples were with Christ in the flesh, it was Christ's power to preserve them. It was not their own power. He's present, and he's present in power. And we've got to ask ourselves a question. What is the power of Christ, especially when it relates to this? Well, perhaps you're familiar with the description of Christ throughout the Gospels. Romans chapter 8, Paul picks up on this description of Christ. One of the unique things that Christ did as our mediator is he reads the heart. Christ is able to read the hearts of men, and he's able to see what men were thinking, even though their words might be leading in a different direction. His interactions with the Pharisees, his interactions with the disciples, this is constantly repeated. Christ knew what was in their hearts. Likewise, that is how Christ keeps his eye on you, what is going on in your heart. That's his power to preserve you. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, it means one very important thing. It's not enough to be physically present. You have to be present in heart as well. That's what Christ is watching. That's what Christ is looking at. The Lord said of David in 1 Samuel, uh, when he was telling the prophet Samuel which son of Jesse to anoint, he said, don't look at the outward appearance, for the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Likewise, Christ in his power looks at your heart. He watches out for your heart. And when your heart begins to wander too close to the street, he says, no, no, come back. Don't go that way. Come back into the yard. Stay here. It's safe. These are the green pastures. That's where the lion lurks. Don't go there. But there's even more in verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them. In your name. 
Now, this ties us into the third commandment, doesn't it? Christ preserves his people in the name of the Father. He keeps them within bounds of God's self-revelation. As we just read in the Catechism and as we saw in verse 6 of this chapter, scan up just a little bit to verse 6, there's a close connection between the name of the Father and the word of the Father. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. You see, the name and the word are closely associated. And so Christ says, I have kept them in your name. It is through the power and the ministry of Christ that the elect are preserved. Now, just as an application at this point, there's, there's a great book. Um, some of you that may be interested in seminary or, or perhaps any kind of church office, uh, perhaps you're in church office, uh, this would be good for you as well. Uh, there's a little book written by a French Reformed author called The Relevance of Preaching. Very small little book by Pierre Marcel. In that book, The Relevance of Preaching, he speaks about how preaching as a means of grace not only converts people, but it preserves them unto glory. This is the spiritual dynamic that's going on with preaching. This is why preaching needs to be a steady diet in the Christian life. Because it is only through the ministry and power of Christ, by His spiritual presence, that we are kept from the power of Satan. Therefore, we need the preaching ministry of Christ. This happens under the ordinary means of grace, by His special blessing, by the power of His Spirit. But you need this for your own preservation. You know, sometimes this is one of the hardest temptations to face, isn't it? Perhaps you've been wandering. Perhaps something's going on in your life. And you think, that's the last place I want to be. It is in church under the preaching that is the only place we need to be, whether we are up or whether we are down. Because God, through the ministry of Christ in the church, preserves his people. He keeps us and he keeps his eye on us. Well, who does he do this for? He does this for the elect. That's the next part of our verse. Uh, of our verse. You see, he says in the very next sentence, those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost. Now, this is a, when Christ uses this language, he's referring to the elect, those whom the Father chose and gave to Christ, those are the elect. But what Christ is talking about is how in the Father's good pleasure, he elected a certain amount of people for salvation. In Christ's obedience to the Father, he has fully fulfilled the Father's will. Every single soul that's given to Christ by the Father, Christ will save unto glory. All those you've given to me, I have kept all of them. All those that you've given to me, I have preserved. Not a single one of them is lost. This is how we are to use the doctrine of election, brothers and sisters. The doctrine of election is, is not really, you don't actually see it in the scriptures, used as a jousting weapon. 
That's, that's not often how the doctrine is used. It's used to encourage the saints, to encourage those who are walking in the faith. Perhaps they're struggling. Perhaps they've got some difficulties. They feel their own weakness. And then the apostles come, First Peter, Paul, this passage, the apostles come and say, you have been elected before the foundation of the world. Look at how long God has loved you. God has loved you longer than time itself. That's why you're saved. All those you have given to me, none is lost. Peter, uh, in the first part of his letter, ties these ideas together beautifully. Peter, by the way, 1 Peter, is a letter written to those that suffer. It's a letter written to those who are in danger of being swallowed up by Satan. And Peter writes this to encourage them. This is how he starts. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice how Peter addresses the church. First, he calls them the elect. And then he says, blessed be God the Father who has provided a glorious inheritance for you who are kept by the power of God through faith. Now, what defines the elect? Well, the elect are those who believe. Or I should say, the elect are those who come to faith at some point. That's why Peter finishes this opening statement with those who are kept by the power of God through faith. Brief application on this point. Faith, your faith in Christ, is what God uses to preserve you. I want you to think about this. Because often we can think about faith as something we do. That we have to hold on tightly or we're going to be lost. That's not what Peter is saying. Peter is saying is that your faith by which you lay hold of Christ is how God lays hold of you and preserves you. So even if your grip fails, his grip never fails. And he lays hold of your faith. This is a description of the elect, and it's these elect that are preserved. Well, now we come to the, to the end of our verse, uh, John 17, 12. We've seen that the ministry of Christ, by his presence and power, preserves the elect from the power of Satan. And this is where he references the son of perdition. None of them is lost. 
Oh, uh, I'm sorry, one last thing on this middle part. Uh, in verse 12, he says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. The word keep there refers to keeping an eye on, sort of watching out for, keeping an ear open to what they're doing. In the second part of the verse, those whom you gave me, I have kept. That word kept is a different word in Greek. And it's a word that means to set a guard around, to set up a defense. It's very similar to what Elisha and his servant witnessed. The word that Christ uses here actually describes the chariots of fire surrounding the city of Samaria. That's what Christ is saying. While I was with them in the world, I kept an eye on them. And all of the elect I guarded with an unceasing vigilance. I am their protector, is the word that he uses here. Well, he protects us from the power of Satan. He says uh, at the last part of verse 12, none of them is lost except the son of perdition. This English translation in the New King James is unfortunate uh, because I don't think it captures what the Greek is saying. If you have a King James version, it's better. Uh, The King James says that none of them is lost but the son of perdition. The, The word that's used here It's not meant to be taken as an exception to the rule. Let me explain it this way. Christ is not saying, all of the elect that God has given me, every single one that the Father chose, I have preserved, except that one that I lost. But let's just, let's not worry about that one. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, all that the Father has given to me, I have kept, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's excluding the son of perdition from the elect. He's not saying the son of perdition is part of the elect. He's saying, of all that you have given me, that outwardly professed your name, I've preserved all of the elect. The one that was lost was the son of perdition. That was in fulfillment of the scriptures. It was meant to happen. So understand, that's what he's saying. This is how J.C. Ryle interprets the passage. It's not that Judas was a mistake. It actually is, in fact, that Judas was a part of this plan the whole time. Now, this is important to clarify here. Because if you can lose your salvation, you will lose your salvation. If only one of God's elect can perish, there is no hope for any of the elect. If any of the souls that the Father has chosen and that Christ has died for perish, that means the Father is not God, Christ is not the Savior, and the Holy Spirit is a fantasy. But the Father is God. Christ is the Savior. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. None of the elect are lost because our salvation does not depend upon ourselves. It depends upon the power of God through faith. And so he says, the son of perdition is lost. This phrase, son of perdition, I like how Ryle explains it. He says this is a, uh, a Hebrew way of talking. Son of perdition means somebody that's worthy of destruction. Worthy of destruction. Um, in in uh, the Old Testament, several stories, David will say to certain individuals, you are worthy of death. Well, the Hebrew phrase is, you're a son of death. That's how the Hebrews would say it. And so this is another Hebrew way of saying it. 
To call him the son of perdition means that he's worthy of destruction. He's worthy of destruction through his sins against the word of God. We know, of course, this refers to Judas, the betrayer of Christ, the one who sold Christ to the Pharisees, the one who at the Lord's Supper was filled with Satan to betray the Son of Man into the hands of sinners. Through his own moral guilt, he's worthy of perdition. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. This is how Paul describes the power of Satan. Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul the Apostle says this, speaking of the resurrection, and you he made alive who were dead in sins and trespasses, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who now works in the sons, uh, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. You see how Paul describes the state of mankind. The state of mankind is a mass of sinners who are self-indulgent, doing whatever they want, fulfilling all the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and at a human level, perhaps it looks normal because it's popular. But what Paul is saying at a spiritual level is, that's the kingdom of Satan. This is how the prince of the power of the air operates. He influences men to destroy themselves through sin. The power of Satan is sin. The power of Satan is to persuade, tempt, deceive, fool, bamboozle you and me into committing sin. That's what he did with Adam and Eve, wasn't it? You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will become like him, knowing good and evil for yourself. And then all throughout the scriptures, when Satan shows up, he always shows up with temptation. Consider Job, my servant. Take away his hedge of protection, and he'll curse you to your face. He'll blaspheme. And then, of course, when he tempted Christ, he was tempting him to sin. Just a brief application for your hearts. Sin is no small thing. Sin is the power of Satan. And, and when we give in to sin, it, it often starts very small, doesn't it? I'll come to church a little bit late. I, I won't read the Bible today. Now, sometimes providentially we can't get to church when we normally do. Sometimes providentially we can't read the Bible like we would like to. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when we make a choice. I, I'll, I'll uh, linger on that website. It always starts small, and then it leads to something bigger. And then it leads to something bigger. And then it leads to something bigger. You know, Judas was the treasurer of the disciples. This is a little bit speculative, but it's, well, I mean, the, the, uh, I believe John or Mark says this. He was the keeper of the money bag, and they knew that he used to take out of it. 
He was an embezzler from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That probably started with a penny. And then a nickel. And then a quarter. And then a dollar. And then $20. And then 30 pieces of silver. And hellfire forever. Be fearful of your small sins. Repent of your minor sins. Because minor sins are the seeds of destruction. Well, this is the power of Satan. Uh, And this is how Satan kills mankind. You know, Hollywood gets it wrong whenever they do the horror movies and the devil shows up. He shows up with lightning bolts and pitchforks as if that's how he kills men. That's not how Satan works. Satan doesn't need to do that. Satan kills men through their own sins. He's very crafty. And this is the power of Satan. This is what got hold of Judas's heart. And this is how he was destroyed. Notice finally what the Lord says about the son of perdition. Uh, he's worthy of death through his own moral fault. He was, he was under the power of Satan. He was not preserved by the ministry of Christ. On the one hand, because he wasn't elect. But on the other hand, because Judas was a blasphemer. He took on the name of disciple, but he did not live the life of a disciple. He did not repent of his sins, and he did not trust in the Lord Jesus. That's why he ultimately fell away. He says that the Scripture might be fulfilled uh, at the end of verse 12. This is a reference to God's revealed will. Now let me define a little distinction here. Sometimes this this is uh, maybe misunderstood. As we read the Scriptures, we understand that there are parts of God's will that He's revealed to us. And there are parts of God's will He has not revealed to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but that which has been revealed belongs to us and to our children forever, that we may keep all the words of this law. The decree of election is God's secret will. It's not been revealed to us. We don't have the roll book of heaven. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do, but we don't. What has been revealed to us is faith and repentance in the Scriptures, living an upright life. That's what God has revealed to us. Essentially saying, there are going to be souls saved, and if you want to be one of those souls, repent and believe in Christ. Now, when he says the son of perdition fell so that the Scripture might be fulfilled, it's fulfilling the threatenings of the law. The third commandment says that the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The son of perdition is not guiltless. And the Lord did not hold him guiltless. And he suffered the just punishment for his sins. There's also fulfillment of prophecy in here. The, the, the apostasy of Judas was prophesied in the Old Testament, which tells us that even in Judas's fall, the Father's will is not overturned. Everything happens according to the Father's will. Well, what do we do with this? If it's by the power and ministry of Christ that the elect are kept from the power of Satan, what does that mean for us? That means you need to be in Christ's presence and be in Christ's word. That's it. Not very profound. You need to be in the presence of Christ because he's the one that preserves you 
And you need to be under the ministry of Christ, be under the ministry of His Word. In conclusion, Paul speaks about this in Colossians 3. Colossians 3. Paul the Apostle ties all these themes together. Colossians 3.1 If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is. Sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Same language as Ephesians 2. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But of all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is how Christ preserves his elect, through his presence and through his ministry. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the presence and the power of Christ, that he is with us by the Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that he watches over our hearts and that he brings us back into the fold when we wander. Please correct us, O Lord, through his ministry. Please cause his word to dwell in us richly in all wisdom, not merely in our minds, but in our hearts, O Lord, that it may become part of our flesh and part of our bones. And we pray that you would preserve us from the power of Satan, for he is mightier than us, and it is you alone who can overthrow him. We ask you to do all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.